Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, the test. Next, Jesus was taken into the world by the Spirit for the test. The devil was ready to give it. Jesus prepared for the test by fasting 40 days and 40 nights. That left him, of course, in a state of extreme hunger, which the devil took advantage of in the first test. Since you are God's son, speak the word that will turn these stones into the loaves of bread. Jesus answered by quoting Deuteronomy. It takes more than bread to stay alive. It takes a steady stream of words from God's mouth. For the second test, the devil took him to the holy city. He sat him on top of the temple and said, Since you are God's son, jump. The devil goaded him by quoting Psalm 91. He has placed you in the care of the angels. They will catch you so that you won't so much as stub your toe on a stone. Jesus countered with another citation from Deuteronomy. Don't you dare test the Lord your God. For the third test, the devil took him to the peak of a huge mountain. He gestured expansively, pointing out all the earth's kingdoms, how glorious they all were. Then he said, they're yours. Lock, stock, and barrel. Just go down on your knees and worship me, and they're yours. Jesus' refusal was cut. Get away from me, Satan. He backed his, refu- his rebuke with a third quotation from Deuteronomy. Worship the Lord your God and only him. Serve him with absolute single-heartedness. The test was over. The devil left. And in his place, angels. Angels came and took care of all Jesus' needs. Thank you, B, and good evening. I'd like to start with a question. How do you measure up to the test? How do I measure up to the test? More to the point. Um, some of us may know that reading in Matthew 4 really well, the story of Jesus' testing in the wilderness. But what did you make of the message translation? Oh, that was really good. Thank you, G. Um, I don't know. It didn't have some of the familiar passages, man does not, man, or words. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And the reason we read it in the message, or be read it in the message, was because I didn't want us doing what I think we often do with that passage and, and all, a lot of passages that we know well, which is just switch off. We know the words, they just wash over us. And actually, I think it's worse with that passage because when we read that story, and I may be speaking for myself here as well, I think we tend, or at least I've always tended, to see it and enjoy it as a really good example of good triumphing over evil, of God putting... Satan in his place and, and it is that but I think that's probably all we tend to see it as and what I want to do this evening is suggest to you that Jesus' testing in the wilderness is relevant in fact it's more than that it's important for each of us who want to follow Jesus in Bath in 2015 hence my question how do we measure up to the test now in a moment we're going to look at each of the three tests in turn. But first, just a couple of, I don't know, you may be sitting there thinking, why is it relevant? So a couple of answers to that question. Why is it relevant to us today in 2015? I think they're pretty obvious reasons, but maybe not. Number one, because Jesus was a man. Okay, 
I know that's obvious, but I just want to underline it. Jesus was human, like you and me. And at various times in the Gospel accounts, we read that he was tired because of all the walking. He was frustrated because of his disciples uh, not being too smart at times. He was angry with the religious leaders stopping people coming to God. He was amazed by the centurion's faith. He was, in this case, hungry. And I think that's important. Sometimes I think when we look at the gospel accounts, we have this perspective. It was really very easy for Jesus. He was God's son. He was just breezing through life, walking across the lake, um, feeding the 5,000. It was all very straightforward for him. Like, almost like Einstein taking GCSE physics. It was a breeze. But I want to say I don't think that's right at all. Jesus didn't glide along through life untouched by the dilemma of human desire. I mean, he wasn't, of course, Jesus was not just a man, but he was fully human, like you and me. And I think he was truly vulnerable in the same way as you as me, you and me, to some of the desires. Well, to, to human desires. And, and actually, therefore, the way he responded to Satan's temptations aren't just a nice story. They're not just an academic exercise. They reveal something important for our walk with God. So that was one. Number two, spiritual warfare is the reality in which we live. Is that obvious? Well, listen to Peter, the Apostle Peter, in his letter, 1 Peter 5. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So that's not great, is it? A roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And Peter was writing to Christians. He wasn't writing to non-Christians. He was writing to Christians. What about Jesus? Well, as many of you will know, my favorite verse in the Bible, John 10.10. Jesus summarizes his mission. I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. That's what he came to do. But in that same verse, in fact, actually in the first half of the verse, what he's just said is, there is a thief who comes only to steal, kill and destroy. And Jesus is right. Any move we make towards life, the life that Jesus wants to bring, that abundant life that he's talking about, is opposed. And if you look at the Bible, Satan plays a key role, obviously, in Genesis and in the other, in the other really old book, Job. And if you go to the end of the Bible, Revelation, he's there. If you read the saints in every age, they take the devil very seriously. Except perhaps now in this modern era, when perhaps we don't talk about the devil very much. Paul says in Corinthians, uh, second letter to Corinthians, we are not unaware of his schemes. But I would suggest that many of us today, and I am certainly guilty of this, seem to live our lives as though spiritual warfare isn't real. Almost as if Jesus has won the victory and all we need to do is believe. Well, there is a sense in which he has won the victory and all we need to do is believe. But that's not all we need to do. Um, I, tr I, I did live a big chunk of my life trying to ignore spiritual warfare. But if that's our mindset, if that's what we're going to do, then we run the risk of being caught unawares and being taken out unnecessarily. 
I, I had to bring in a bit of Lord of the Rings at this point, so apologies. See whether you think this is relevant to what I'm trying to say. Um, I was trying to think of a picture of us as Christians ignoring spiritual warfare. And the, the bit I think of is in The Two Towers, which is the second Lord of the Rings film, if you're familiar with it. Um, King Theoden of Rohan has, had, has basically been enslaved. His mind has been trapped by the evil wizard Saruman. And Gandalf, in a, a kind of Jesus role, has broken Saruman's grip and released Theoden, got him back in his right mind. But even though the king has bands of marauding orcs roaming across his kingdom, he still won't go out and fight. So Gandalf says to him, you must fight. Theoden says, I will not risk open war. Aragorn steps in. I hope you know who these people are, but apologies if you don't. Aragorn steps in. I should have shown the clip, really. Aragorn steps in and says, open warfare is upon you, whether you will risk it or not. And I think, and he's right in the context of Lord of the Rings, but Theoden takes his people to hide in their fortress in the mountains, Helm's Deep, because he thinks they will be safe there. As it happens, he's wrong. And I think as Christians, we can turn a blind eye, we can go and hide in our churches, in our Christian communities, thinking we are safe, but really open war is upon us, whether we will risk it or not, whether we like it or not, whether we will change our worldview to accommodate it or not, it is there. And if you don't believe me, then try preparing a talk on Jesus' testing in the wilderness and see how many um, accusing or distracting thoughts hit you in the preparation. So here's a little selection of what I heard in my head this week. Andrew, choose a different passage. You don't have anything helpful to say on this one. Andrew, don't mention whatever you do, spiritual warfare. That's a subject you don't really know anything about. Andrew, in 2015, you can't go talking about the devil. People will think you are weird. That that came many times, actually. There was a a real theme there. Uh, There's a World Cup match on TV, why not go and watch that one instead of working on your talk? And it was Tonga versus Georgia, I think, as well. Um, Or even, this is the ultimate one, your desk needs tidying. And if anyone knows me, they know that that I wouldn't tidy my desk unless, well, unless I was desperately trying to avoid things. So anyway, that, that was jokey, but there was a serious point there. We do, there are accusations, there are distractions, and I believe that there is a source for those. But let's look at the three tests. Bill, can you put up the first test? Okay. I think you'll probably know this well, but it's there if you want to read it again. Jesus was hungry. 40 days and 40 nights without food. I think he was more than hungry. Um, We too are going to hunger. And I'm not just talking about food. I'm talking about our desires. Actually, as it happens, the importance of desire was what I spoke about when I was up here last time in May. Don't worry, I'm not about to test you. But just, I wanted to know, does anyone remember the story about the sea lion who'd lost the sea? Okay, thank goodness. If you remembered that, you probably remembered all that you needed to. No, the one I do want to talk about, I just want to give you a one-minute version of that talk now, because I think it's very relevant for this first test. So the one-minute version is this. The deep desires, the core longings of our hearts, things like to be loved, 
for adventure, for intimacy, for security, for beauty, for identity, to have fun, to be creative, to be part of a bigger story. Those core desires, I argued, and still do, are good. They are from God, and they are intended to be for God. We need those desires for our journey through life. If we shut them down, as I myself did for a big chunk of my life, thinking that desire meant that desires would lead me to sin, if we do shut them down, then what happens is we end up dry or even dead spiritually, and we lose connection with God. We need those desires for our walk with God. However, if we take those desires for God and we place them on something finite, however good that thing may appear, and often it does appear good to start with, our desires can become insatiable and we get addicted. So the point of that talk was that we need to choose to be alive and hungry, or thirsty if you prefer, but we need to look to God to meet that hunger. And that's really what's going on here. The devil sees the opportunity. He comes to Jesus as he does to us in our hunger. And what he simply says is, you don't have to stay hungry, you know. There are options here. And he's not lying at this point because there are options. There are often things that we can do about our hunger. And those options, the range of those options, they increase the more we are willing to turn away from trusting God and to take the matter into our own hands. The lie is that these options will bring us what we most deeply desire. They won't. Every idol is an imposter. So, to give you some examples, the first one is from my own life. And yes, I did mention this before, if it seems familiar, but it is a good example. Two of my strongest core desires are... Well, they were and they still are, but particularly were for identity and security. The latter, I think, being rooted in a childhood where financial insecurity caused an awful lot of stress in the family. Now, these are good desires, and I now try to look to Jesus for both my identity and my security. But I didn't used to. Instead, I ended up looking for them in my job and my career. And from a worldly perspective, I was actually quite good at that. Um, And let me be clear, I'm not saying that you shouldn't enjoy your job and you shouldn't work hard and you shouldn't look for your career to be successful. What I'm saying is that if that becomes where you rest your desire for security, your desire for identity, if that is what you're doing with the job, as I was, then in effect you pour everything into that job, all your time and energy And family and God and anything else comes a long way behind. And that is what I did for many years. And it, I was going to church. I would have said I was a Christian. But I, looking back on it, think of it as a form of godless living. Because my priorities were all wrong. Here's a different example. Why did so many people, and I think I mean mainly women, buy the book Fifty Shades of Grey? Why do so many people, and here I think I mean, sadly, mainly men, seem to struggle with some kind of addiction to internet porn? I would suggest it's because they're looking to meet their desire for intimacy and for beauty 
and for love in completely the wrong place. So Jesus responds to the devil, these options aren't true life. I'm looking to God for life. I'm not going to take this into my own hands. And this is a crucial moment for us in whatever options we are, or whatever, yeah, whatever temptations or options we are looking at. We need to face those options and see what they really amount to. And that's not life. Not as Jesus meant it to be. Abundant life. And if you think about it, if you go for a long walk, if you go for a really long walk, which I like to do, um, you get very thirsty. You develop a really deep thirst. And what is it that you need for that really deep thirst? It's water. Water is what you need. If someone offered you a gin and tonic, that wouldn't be much good. And it's a bit like that with our desires. If we will desire more deeply, more clearly, then I think we'll see the offer, or the offers, or the options for what they really are. And like Jesus, we'll look the imposter in the face, and we will laugh. Interestingly, three years after I began to recover my desire, God told me to trust him, to give up my nice, well-paid, secure job, and start something new, uh, untested, and from my perspective, massively risky. I'm glad I chose to obey. It wasn't easy. I took a bit of persuading. Um, Because life has been so much richer as a result, although, sadly, I don't mean financially. Right, next test, test two. So the second test comes after we choose not to take matters into our own hands. So when Jesus refused to turn the stones into bread, he was choosing to trust God. And that's what we're saying if we say no to whatever options are put in front of us. So things go up again now. Satan's reply to Jesus, or to us, is effectively, ah, so you're going to trust God, are you? Hmm. Prove that he really cares for you, this God of yours. So this is an attack on God's heart towards us. And this is almost inevitable. If, if, as I said with desire, you choose to be hung, you choose to keep desire, to have desire, to desire deeply, you don't get everything you want immediately. You will be hungry. And this, this is almost inevitable, this second test for the hungry soul. The doubts begin to creep in. God, I know you love me, but I didn't expect to have to wait so long for whatever it is that I desire. And we do begin to wonder, God, do you really care for me? I think Jesus' response is our only hope. I don't need to prove that God cares for me. He cares for me now. You see, if we look, if if we judge God's goodness to us by how our lives are going, you know, how well things are at that point in time, then the verdict on his heart towards us is always going to depend on the next set of facts, the next set of developments. And the devil will use the pain and confusion of this fallen world to cast doubt over God's goodness. And I must be honest, I have struggled with this test quite a lot since I stood here at the start of May. A couple of weeks later, some ongoing investigations into my health revealed an unexpected result, which was that one of my kidneys was not in a good state and I needed to have an operation and a follow-up procedure to put it right. And yet, and that's all happened. And thank you for all those who prayed for me. But even after the surgeon has done all this stuff, even after all that prayer, the pains continue. Does that mean that somehow God doesn't love me? 
No, absolutely not. Jesus came to answer this question, does God love us? That's why the cross, the ground in front of the cross, is really the only place we can take a firm stand against the doubts that are going to come in the journey of desire. We don't need God to prove his love for us because he has already done so at the cross. Test three, Bill, please. Okay, this one, the final one. The cat's out of the bag now, really. Satan reveals his true aim. Jesus, you can rule the kingdoms of the world. You don't have to do the suffering bit there. There's a much easier way. Why not cut a deal with me? All you have to do is bow down and worship me. So he's offering Jesus the goal that Jesus wants. The end point he is aiming to achieve. But there's a big, there's a sort of shortcut here with a really important thing. Jesus basically has to give his heart away and worship. Now, I think this is the key, this is the key test. It all comes down to worship. What will we, or what do we, give our hearts away to in return for this promise of life? It's kind of like the ultimate invitation to idolatry. And in some ways, to me, this test feels way too obvious. I mean, of course, we wouldn't bow down and worship the devil, and Jesus wasn't going to do that either, was he? But I wonder, I think sometimes we start off seeking something good, but that goal, that end point that we're aiming for, becomes so important to us that it seems to justify almost any means to get there, with the result that we end up giving our hearts away to that goal, to that end point, rather than to God. So... I came up with some examples of what I think sometimes happens here. So a church which places such a focus on preaching the word of God that they end up, in effect, worshipping the word rather than the God that that word reveals. A Christian businessman or woman whose desire to be successful so that they can finance even more charitable good works only leads them to serve money not God. The church leader whose desire to grow their church means that they become focused on numbers but not on the power that the living God can make in an individual's life. Maybe the person who is so committed to social justice that they become consumed by their action against poverty rather than giving their heart to their Heavenly Father. Or the parent who is so committed to their child's success which obviously is a good thing that everything else comes second, including God. And then finally, the worship leader who leads worship so beautifully that in the end they become proud and gradually the worship becomes more about them than about God. So those are all, all of those things were good to pursue, but actually in my examples at least, people ended up worshipping the goal rather than the Heavenly Father. I think that is a real challenge for us. I think, we, I think I tend to, I've tended to miss it, but I think it is a challenge for us. Jesus, of course, shuts the devil down and says, there are no shortcuts, and my heart belongs to God alone. It's worth pointing out that this third test is not a one-off for Jesus. It keeps coming back in his earthly life. I think it's there in Gethsemane, but actually, even more obviously, and I want to quote this one because it is important, I think, in terms of what we think about. In Matthew 16, Jesus says to his disciples, 
Well, he asks his disciples, who do you think I am? And Peter blurts out, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says these lovely words to him, blessed are you, Simon Peter, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. So Peter gets top marks for listening to God. He is number one disciple. And as soon as Peter has said that, and the disciples have realised it, Jesus begins to teach them what being the Messiah, being the anointed one, is really going to mean. That he is going to go to Jerusalem, he is going to suffer, and he is going to be killed. And at that point, his number one disciple takes him aside and says, no, never, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus responds, and I'm sure you've heard this, get behind me, Satan, you are a stumbling block to me, you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Now, I used to think that was really a harsh thing for Jesus to say to Peter so soon after he'd been so insightful to call him Satan or Satan's mouthpiece in that way. But actually, thinking about it, I think what it does show us is how important it is that we are able to distinguish who is speaking. So Jesus clearly recognised the devil's voice. And actually, it is that same third test again. You don't need to do the suffering. And he, he was really harsh and really strong. In, cut, in, in effectively cutting Peter down to size. Okay, I want to finish with a few practical points which I hope will help us in times when we are tested. And I am conscious I've spoken a lot about the devil and about spiritual warfare. Uh, that was kind of inevitable given the passage, but maybe some of you are sitting there thinking, this all sounds a bit weird, a bit spooky. I understand that. A few years ago, I would probably have been feeling exactly the same as you. Let me be clear on a few things. I am not blaming everything that goes wrong in our lives on the devil. Um, And I'm certainly not suggesting that we should become fixated about what he's up to. What I am saying is that we do have an enemy. He is subtle, he is cunning, and he would love us to live our lives on the basis that he is not there. And we should not let him have that advantage over us. We should be aware of his schemes, as Paul said. In the Bible, Satan is called um, a number of things, the prince of lies, the accuser of the brethren. And in this Christian family, in this church, we talk a lot about hearing from God, listening to God, discerning his voice, and that is really good. But I think we also need to make sure that we recognize the voice of our enemy when he speaks, and we're not deceived by the lies or the accusations, whether they're spoken sometimes by our friends or other people we know, like Peter did for Jesus, or whether they're inside our own heads. So, two specific things I think we can learn from Jesus' teaching. The first one is obvious. The Bible is important. Jesus uses scripture every time to counter the devil's lies, which is why it is really good to know our Bibles. Although, in passing, I would also point out the devil also knows scripture and indeed quotes a psalm at Jesus. So just because someone quotes scripture for you, it does not mean that they're on God's side. But here are some verses to encourage us from the word. In Ephesians 6, Paul says that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities and powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's not very encouraging. But, wait for the next bit. Therefore, put on the full armour of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. There is good news here. There is armour. We have armour. We need to use it. Paul lists all the different... If you know Ephesians 6, he lists all the different bits of armour. That's a sermon in itself. That's for another time. 
What I want to point out is that it's not all defensive. There is a lot of defensive stuff. But there is this thing, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So again, the Word of God is powerful. It is a weapon, and it's an offensive weapon. We need to learn to use it. Here's some encouragement from the Word of God. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. James, the brother of Jesus, chapter 4, verse 7. Submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So there is good news here. God is with us. We need to stay close to him, but if we do, the devil will flee. You know, God is mightier than our enemy. That was the first thing. Second point we can learn from these testings. Make no agreements. What do I mean by that? Well, you saw how Jesus did it. He didn't even begin to engage with any of the thoughts the devil threw at him. Any of those choice morsels that the devil threw out there. Jesus just wasn't having anything to do with them. And I think what we can learn from that is it's much easier to shut down a thought or a temptation at the start, like Jesus did, rather than once we begin to think about it and maybe have began, begun to make an agreement with it. So at this point, I'm going to read Thomas Akempis, 14th century German monk. This shows you that really that human nature is the same today as it was 600 years ago. What he wrote is, we must be watchful, especially in the beginning of temptation, for then the enemy is more easily overcome if he be not suffered to enter the door of the mind, but is withstood upon the threshold of the very moment that he knocketh. For first there cometh into the mind a simple thought, then a strong imagination, afterwards delight and the evil motion and consent. And so little by little the malignant foe doth gain full entrance when he is not resisted in the beginning. And I think that is really important. Do not engage, do not assent to anything, because once you do, there will then be a follow-up. And I, when I was thinking about that, I just, for some reason, thought of King David on the rooftop of his palace in Jerusalem. It was the spring, the armies had gone off. He should have gone off to war to fight the Philistines, but he had generals to do that sort of thing for him now, and so he stayed at home, and he was bored. And there he is on the rooftop, and then across the rooftops, he sees Bathsheba. Just catches a glimpse of her. And if at that moment... He had resisted, which I think would have looked like acknowledging Bathsheba. It looks like a very beautiful woman, crediting her beauty to the creator God who he loved and then dismissing it from his mind. Then he would have avoided a path that led, okay, to adultery, but then eventually to murder and then to the death of a baby. And all that pain. And this was David a man after God's heart. So, it's not always easy. I'm not pretending it is. But we need to resist, and we need to resist at the start before things get more serious. Right, I was thinking of how to end this talk. Some of you might just want me to sit down. Um, but, I was, more seriously, I was thinking, what is the key to resisting? And to me, it all comes back to that third test, worship. What do we give our hearts to? And actually, to what Jesus called the most important commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. 
I used to think that was impossible. Maybe it is. But I used to think that was a massive challenge and, and a really a burden. I used to think that was, how can I do that? Um, that was when I'd been shutting down my desire. I think now that I've begun to recover my desire, I've realised that that commandment is actually a rescue. It's not a burden. It's designed to rescue us. We need to make a practice of loving God. How? How do we love the people or the things that we currently love? Well, we delight in them. We choose them over other people or other things. We prioritise them. We give our heart to them. We spend as much time with them as possible. If we can do this with our Heavenly Father, I think it's a huge rescue from the tests and temptations that will come our way. Because, I mean, it's, it is pretty hard to lust after someone if in that very moment you say, Jesus, I love you. It's pretty hard to hold bitterness in your heart against someone who's really annoying and just annoyed you if at that very moment you turn your heart to God. So I think, I, I mean, it sounds slightly flippant, but it is a really serious point. What a relief it is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. I don't find that easy, but I think that's something we need to work at. For then every desire finds its right place in our life. It doesn't latch onto something finite and become insatiable. So I would like the band, if they are around, to come up and lead us in some songs. Um, that doesn't mean you have to sing along with them. I would like this to be a time of genuine worship in whatever way seems right to you. So feel free to sit or stand. Uh, you may want to pray, either on your own or with a friend, or there will be a team of beautiful people forming over here who would love to pray with you and support you if you would like that. Um, before, before Tim starts to sing, I am going to lead us in a prayer. In fact, I'm going to pray this prayer in the first person because it's my prayer, but you may want to join in with me and make this your prayer. Thank you, Jean. Let's pray. Dear God, holy and victorious Trinity, you alone of all, are worthy of all my worship, my heart's devotion, all my praise, all my trust, and all of my desire. I worship you and bow down to you, and I give myself over to you in my heart's search for life. You alone are life and you have become my life. I renounce all other gods, all idols, and I give you the place in my heart and in my life that you truly deserve. I confess here and now that it is all about you, Lord. It's not about me. Forgive me, God, for my every sin. Search me and know me and reveal to me any aspect of my life that isn't pleasing to you. Show me any agreements that I've made and in your Holy Spirit's power, please help me to break them. Grant me the grace of a deep and a true repentance. In Jesus' name, amen.